Yeah, if you had to miss the preaching this morning, you'd be screaming like that too. But the rest of y'all get to stay, you know, so it's, it's cool. You're cool. It's cool. Well, open in your words of 1 Peter chapter 4. And as you are turning there, I'd like you to hear for just a moment from renowned theologian of our day, Whoopi Goldberg. If Whoopi's quote, Whoopi in a recent meeting on The View program, I guess she's a part of, was interviewing Joel Osteen and said this. She says, I'm a believer that God created us all and gave us all a free will and wants us to live the lives that we live. How do you feel about folks who are gay or different? I kind of like the groove you're in, but want to make sure you're including everybody in it. Are are gay folks welcome at your church? That was an interview that she was having with Joel Osteen. And his response was interesting, but that's not what I'm going to go into. In her statement, uh, people are always talking theology. You may not realize it, but everybody's a theologian. I can't remember who it was that I read who said that. I don't know if it was Sinclair Ferguson, I think, who said, everybody's a theologian. The question really only is whether they're a bad theologian or not. Everybody's a theologian. So Whoopi's got some theology here. Here's how Whoopi's theology works, because quite honestly, it's a very, very common theology. It works like this. God gave us life. We choose how we live that life. And God wants us to live the life that we choose. According to Whoopi, even if it's different, right? Now, the different emphasis for her is different in your church. But basically, her theology says that that she believes in a God. And if you choose to live your life a certain way, then God's for you in that. You know, dude, is, is your church like that? Is that what you believe? Because that's what I believe about God. Now, what's interesting, because this is the noise that we hear, kind of street-level noise of people who are living their lives. When you come to the Bible, what does the Bible sound like? So let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, keeping theologian Whoopi Goldberg in the back of our minds. See if theologian Apostle Peter sounds similar in his thoughts. Verse 1, chapter 4. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But 
they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Lord, thank you for your living word, your living and never changing word revelation of truth that is from you, the creator of all things. So, Father, as we listen today, we will, in a variety of measures, have to battle the thoughts that are in our minds. Uh, For we live in the world with Whoopi Goldberg and the such. We don't think like you. So, Lord, help us. Help us by grace today to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to pull this verse apart and just walk us through bits and pieces of it just as it's laid out there uh, in this passage, right? So verse one, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, right? Now here's the rest of the flow of the verses, so that you might live a certain life, right? Apparently, maybe informing local theologians, but apparently there is not just any way of life that the God of the universe is interested in you leading. There's a certain way of life. And if you're going to live that certain way of life, you're going to have to do a couple of things in order to live that way of life, right? Two very basic things are mentioned here. One, if you're going to live a certain life, you must think a certain way. That's the admonition of this passage, is to think the same way Christ thought about life. So if you're going to live a certain life, you're going to have to think a certain way. And this, is, this, is a, this is a good bumper sticker, something to have on your refrigerator, something to think every day. The life we live is the product of the thoughts we think. That's just the facts. If you're having a hard time seeing your life be different in whatever category that you really like to see it be different in, it's because you're not thinking differently. If you keep thinking the same way you've always thought in those categories of your life, you will keep being the person you have always been in those categories. So if you want to be different, you're going to have to think different. If you want to live a certain life the way the Bible describes, you're going to have to think a certain way. So number one, you must think a certain way. Number two, you must be intentional about thinking a certain way. This passage doesn't just say, think a certain way. It says, arm yourselves with thinking a certain way. Look at Thomas Schreiner's thought here. He says, the main point of the verse is that believers are to arm themselves with the intention to suffer. And Peter covered that last week on how much this book is about suffering, the reality of suffering. And so here, Peter is saying, you've just heard all this emphasis about suffering. Now arm yourselves, be prepared, be intentionally prepared that you are ready to suffer, right? The term arm yourselves has military connotations. The martial language indicates that discipline and grit are needed to live the Christian life. Indeed, believers must arm themselves with the attitude that suffering is inevitable, Like soldiers preparing for battle, believers should prepare themselves for 
suffering. You know, listen, the way in which you approach your life, the framework for, you know, what illustration do you kind of slip your life into? The Bible uses this soldier imagery to describe your life. And if you're you're just sort of getting up to live the suburban American lifestyle, you're you're not armed for suffering. You're you're armed for air conditioning, right? I mean, you're you're armed for comfort. You're armed for luxury. You're armed for time off. You're, You're armed to take it easy. But what if you're dressed up like a soldier? You're putting on a soldier's uniform, and you're getting ready to walk out into a battle. You're armed for suffering. You're you're aware bullets are going to fly. I might get hit. There might be danger. There could be risk involved. You think differently depending on how you approach your life, right? Well, the Bible says arm yourself for suffering. And and if you're going out onto the battlefield, it may be that at some point you're going to have to have, as Shriner says, some discipline and some grit. You might have to have some grit about your life. Listen, I, I don't. I don't always. I don't always feel like having grit. I don't. Right? There, there are moments, and this this thought from Mr. Schreiner stuck out to me because I've I've had to have the Holy Spirit tell me in the last several months, quit being a wimp. I've had to have the Holy Spirit tell me that. Quit being a wimp. Right? I mean, sometimes life is going a certain way. Situations are weighing down a certain way. And yeah, I'm aware. I'm in a war. Right? There's a war going on. And I want to crawl into my foxhole without anybody around me and cry. That's what I want to do. I just want to crawl in this hole. I want to duck for cover. I want to put my weapon down, take my helmet off, and just cry. And I've had God in a couple of those moments say, quit being a wimp. It's not time for you to cry, Keith. It's time for you to lead. Now, I didn't, I didn't want to hear that. But I couldn't argue with it because there was a, there's roles for us to play in the kingdom of God and walking with God. Right? And sometimes, hey, you know, there's roles for me as a dad. There's roles for me as a pastor that, that sometimes the mode for me to be in isn't, I just want to ball up. It's, you know, okay, Keith, no matter how you feel, you have to lead right now. You have to lead. I don't feel like leading. All right. Well, did you arm yourself for suffering when you got up today? Did you arm yourself knowing you weren't necessarily going to feel like doing what you need to do? Right. Well, that's part of the Christian life. And how many of y'all recognize this past week you didn't feel like doing what you needed to do in some category? Right? Arm yourself for suffering. Wayne Grudem says, arm yourselves with the same thought means to think as Christ did about obedience and suffering. To be convinced that it is better to do right and suffer for it than to do wrong. Be convinced. Be convinced before you go onto the battlefield that it's better to obey God at all costs. It's better to do what God says. It's better to identify the will of God and to do it rather than to do what feels like in the moment it'll be rewarding. It will, as a good American, protect you from living outside the air conditioning. Listen, listen, I say that because I don't think any of us realize how much of a world we've created 
that necessitates air conditioning and in multiple categories, right? We want comfort. So we interpret life, we interpret God based on whether that looks comfortable or not. Could God be calling me to do that? There's suffering involved. Now, there's no way that God wouldn't want me to do that. Right? This sounds familiar? God would want me to be happy. I actually did a little Google thing this week. I can't remember what phrase that I, that I feed in. Uh, God wants me, just feed that in. You know how Google will finish your sentence for you? There was, there was two. You know what number two was? To be happy. That's what Google said. God wants me to be happy. Because that's what everybody's wanting to find out about. God wants me to be happy. This verse says, prepare yourself to not feel happy all the time. Prepare yourself to do the will of God. Look at verse 2 here. Prepare yourself, arm yourself with this way of thinking so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Live your life no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. All right, because you and I live in the same world with Whoopi, and Whoopi is not the only person who thinks the way she does. Your next-door neighbor does. You and I do on certain days of the week. All right, question for us. Are you prepared to receive a Christianity that has this characteristic to it? Human passions, right, human passions, you know what that is? It's your desires, it's your pleasures, it's your cravings, it's your eager pursuits, it's your thrills, it's what you call fun. Human passions may be at odds with God's will. This doesn't sound deep, but I tell you what, it's every day. It's every day. And the reason why Whoopi has the problem that she has in interpreting life and God is because she thinks at the center of it all is what she wants. And she's done the terrible theologian mistake. And if you have done this, you should repent of glorifying man's, quote, free will. It's amazing how people who have probably never read the Bible can defend free will. If you are a free will defender, you are in good company with the Whoopi Goldbergs of the theological universe. Because biblically, your will's never been free. It's never been free. Your will has been damaged, controlled, overwhelmed by dead and trespasses and sin, controlled by the influence of others. And then you made choices. And Whoopi wants God to be happy with those choices. And he wants the churches to be happy with those choices. Okay, are you ready to embrace a Christianity where there may be a discrepancy between what I want and what God wants? Or do, does God have to want what I want? All right, this is biblical. All right, look, at the, look at the context here. You have human passions that are mentioned. Then in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Okay, that, that's human passions. It's doing what you want. The context of describing what human passions are is the Gentiles do what they want. That's their passions. They want certain things, so they do certain things. Now, what's interesting here is, I think, a fresh definition for suffering. 
Because like Christ suffered, then the thought is, arm yourselves, be of the same mindset as him. Don't be like the Gentiles who do what they want. So, so suffering here, I think, has an interesting, fresh definition for us. Because when we hear suffering, we read in the Bible, a lot of times we're thinking persecution, loss of property, being beaten, loss of life. Right? That's suffering here. But in this context, suffering has to do with the Gentiles getting to do what they want to do. So suffering basically is moments when my flesh is not getting what it wants. That's a good American definition because none of us are being beaten. Our property is not being seized. Our lives aren't being threatened because we're Christians. But, but often I'm having to do what I don't want. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that for you. I don't want to respond to you a certain way. I don't want to respond to my wife a certain way. I don't want to. I feel like it, okay? And then to be required to is a form of suffering. It's suffering. I'm not getting to do what I want to do, right? Here'd be a good good paraphrase here, good American paraphrase. Somebody needs to become a new American translation, just about raunchy suburban American translation. And we, we need phrases like this. Arm yourselves to do what's not easy. Arm yourselves to do what's not comfortable. Arm yourselves to do what's not going to gratify a craving in your life. Arm yourselves to go out into your life and be ready to obey God even if it's not what you feel like doing in that moment. Arm yourselves as a Christian to be ready to lay your life down, to serve others even if you can't figure out how personally rewarding that's going to be. Arm yourself to do the will of God, even if it seemingly violates your personal rights. That's a good translation, I think. That's where that verse is trying to go. Now, immediately goes from this example to trafficking into, okay, well, what do the Gentiles want? What kind of stuff do the Gentiles want? And we're going to get one list of many, many lists like this in Scripture, and I think it's significant for us to pay attention to the details. What do the Gentiles want to do? They want to live in sensuality passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Right? Just, just a, is this, this is not an, ex, uh, an exhaustive list. Right? Many of the lists that you come across in the Bible, they don't advertise themselves as an A to Z thing. Right? So even when you're reading good lists, like you know, the gifts of the Spirit, I don't know that you can conclude, well, that's, that's all of them right there, A to Z. Well, no, it's just a list. I'm just conversationally mentioning you that there's some issues here. For instance, here's some pleasures of the Gentile. The person who doesn't live for God lives for these passions and pleasures. So here they are, sensuality. This is, this is a big word here. It has to do with a life of excess, lacking restraint, indecent behavior, wanton manners as filthy words. Indecent bodily movements, unchaste handling of males and females. That's what that word means. And it's, it's interesting what company it happens to be in. Sensuality, hanging around, drinking parties, and drunkenness. I know that's a shock for those of you who attended LSU, but um, <laughs> it happens. It happens. Uh, <laughs> Just make this note to the wise. I don't know. There's, there's a naiveness sometimes in our lives as Christians 
where people sort of keep inheriting the same effects of sin upon their lives, right? The effects of sensuality, the effects of uh, men and women who get in situations where they're kind of groping around with each other, if you know what I'm talking about. And the, and the, the regret of that, and, and it happens, and oh, how did this happen again? Well, it, it might have had to do with the drinking party that you went to where there was drunkenness that led to sensuality, right? See, when we read the Bible, I mean, can we read the Bible and actually believe the Bible? I know that's a novel thing to do, but it's necessary sometimes to actually believe there's wisdom in the Word of God. And we're not smarter than God's Word. Listen, if you're a Christian and your heart is to to arm yourself to obey God for the sake of the gospel, you know, please don't don't try and get smarter than the Bible. Don't try and take these shortcuts that well, you know, I can do that and, and, you know, because there's something about me that's unique. I can, I can hang around drinking parties. Drinking parties provide opportunities that most people don't have enough fortitude and strength and conviction to avoid the drunkenness that comes with drinking parties. And then once they're in that state, they don't have the wherewithal to avoid the sensuality that comes with it. So if you're a man or a woman here who has been involved in sensual promiscuity, you've been around uh, the opposite sex, it just so happens you can tell stories in the last few weeks or months about inappropriate activity that had happened. It probably didn't happen all by itself, did it? And if it did, it's still wrong. But glean wisdom here. You can't hang around drinking parties and drinking party people where drunkenness is going to occur and think you're going to be spared of sensuality. Right? The Bible's serious. Right? And you, you understand, this, this is why Whoopi's theology doesn't work real well. God has given us life and he's given us a free will. So we choose what we do with that life and God wants us to live that life. Does he really? Does he want us to do the things that are in this list? All right, turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's several lists like this. I just want to, you to see that Peter's not just sort of off on his own, bugged by some behavior that he doesn't happen to like, commenting on it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says this, verse 9. This is the Apostle Paul, different apostle, same spirit of God inspiring. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So this is the category of people who are not going to heaven, not going to inherit a future blessing from God of the kingdom. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, God has lists all over the Bible where he says, I am not for you in that. Yes, I did create you, and you do have to make some choices, but I will not support every choice you make. 
No, I don't support you being different than my will. I don't. Right now, now I, I want to I focus in on something here because you are living in a media-saturated world that can't seem to stop talking about one particular human behavior these days. Anybody know what it is? Homosexuality. I've never seen something in the news so much in my life. I mean, literally in the past week, uh, I've, you know, it's been talked about by the president. I read the newspaper yesterday. The Presbyterian Church USA has just appointed its first gay pastor. Um, I read a week or two ago about a, a high school boy who was suspended from school because in a class, he mentioned to another student and was overheard by the teacher that, that he was a Christian and disagreed that homosexuality was, was okay. Teacher overheard that, sent him to the office, and he was suspended. Right? It's, it's like in the news everywhere. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a moment because I, th- I think we need to see how the Bible relates to the news in our lives. So I, I want to raise a couple of questions here. I, wanna, I want us to look at one, how should the Christian feel about homosexuality? And everybody's already got a little bit of a opinion in this category. It's been informed because it's in the air all around us. I'm just going to cover two thoughts I think would be helpful. One, the Christian cannot remove homosexuality from the category of sin and place it in a category of acceptable. The Christian doesn't get to do that. Christian doesn't have permission to do that. Only the God of the universe who created all things has the right and the privilege to set the rules. Only God gets to label what is sin because all the rest of us are sinners and we don't really know accurately what sin is. Only the one who is outside of sin can see sin accurately, accurately enough to actually call things correctly. The God of the universe has called homosexuality sin. And there's not a person under God's authority who has the right to relabel it. You know, you guys ever, ever do this? You're, you're doing something on your computer and you, you do something, you ask the computer, you click on something wrong and this little screen pops up and you have, you have committed an illegal act and this program will now shut down. I'm always wondering when I see that, it's like, it's like the, the door is going to burst open. Is somebody about to come in here and put me in shackles? You just did something illegal on your computer. Uh, or you try to mess with some file a certain way and it says you do not have permission to blah, 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 right? The people at Microsoft have made sure. Why? Because, you know, they're the software writers and we own the way this software operates and you don't have the right to change it, right? Okay, well, you're just a little measly software engineer and you just told me I don't have the right to change what you did. What about the God of the universe who created man? None of us have the right to say, God, you know what? You said this, but we're, we're changing that now, All right? So no Christian has permission to relabel something that God has already labeled, right? We just read one of many passages in the Bible and the context for homosexuality is in a list of sins. It's not the exception to the rest of the list. It's just among many sins. Now, it is among many sins. 
You notice that the conversation doesn't stop there. It just is among sins, right? So here's the other thing for Christians. Number two, a Christian isn't justified to create a separate category of sinners. Like this heterosexual sinners and then there's homosexuality. So this kind of this kind of is the other side of this issue, right? The world has treated this subject so differently, it has put it in a unique category, and then the church comes along and starts doing the same thing. It is one sin amidst many sins. And so you and I can't recoil at homosexuality in a way that we don't recoil at a murder or at a liar or a thief. We don't have permission from God to say, you know what? I've got some sins in this list that I really feel sort of okay with and some that I'm really, really hostile about. And homosexuality is one of them. I can't find anywhere in the Bible where you and I have permission to do that. But we've learned that from the world. The world has said, there's, no, but there's something unique about homosexuality. Right? Let me just walk you through some thought here. Homosexuality is not just uh, some activity. It, it, it is an orientation, right? It's a sexual orientation. A person is oriented that way. So, you know, how are you going to address that if that's just the way someone is? Okay, what, what does that mean, that's the way someone is? Well, you know, you know, sort of their genetic disposition, their physiological disposition is to be that way. So, you know, you've got to be careful that you're not trying to tell people that just to not be who they are. Uh, well, you know, listen, some, something happened to all of humanity, not, not just to homosexuals. Something happened to all of humanity before the Bible was written, this event called the fall. This incredible event that we learn about in the Bible that redid everything. It changed everything. It altered creation. The Bible says creation now groans awaiting its redemption. Every aspect of creation was affected by this fall. Right? Give you an illustration of this. This is, this is a minor comparison. In the spring, a, a, a tree outside of our house was hit by lightning. Right? It was loud. I just left the house. It was loud. It was, it was freaking the kids out. They're all screaming. And, you know, they're calling me on the phone. I'm driving. I'm a few miles away. They're calling me on the phone to make sure I'm okay. You know, I, I, what's the matter? Well, I come back, and there's a variety of impact from this lightning strike, right? The tree, it hit a big oak tree, and we thought it was making it kill the oak tree, but it, just, it blew the bark off the trunk. I mean, just blew it apart. And so there's bark all over the ground. Right next to the bark, there's little Mr. Squirrel. (laughs) I mean, you can't write stuff like this. I mean, it's like he is posing on the ground, something like this. (laughs) His hair is standing up and he is stiff as a board. Just like that. Uh there was a, there's a chain. We have a swing hanging from a chain. I couldn't figure out why. Why was the ch- I had leveled this thing. I hung this thing and I used a level on it. Why all of a sudden was it tilted? It took me a couple of days to figure that one out. I finally traced the lightning and figured out the lightning. Lightning jumped out of the tree and went down the chain and in the ground. 
and it heated that chain up so bad that the chain actually was longer on one end than the other. Inside of our house, lightning had kind of jumped into the circuitry, so the VCR, our old ancient VCR, uh, was fried. It's dead, just dead on the scene. Unlike the security system for the house, which was not dead, it just lives in a chronic state of confusion. <laughs> right now, it thinks half the doors and windows are open. They're not open, but it thinks that they're open, right? All right so this is the effect. Lightning hits, and a bunch of stuff was affected in a certain way. All right, something happened in humanity called the fall. The fall hit man, and a bunch of stuff happened in that moment. And not all of us, I'll even say not all of us, genetically are affected the same way. So it's very possible, because this is the latest argument for human behavior being allowed to be whatever it is. And that's the argument that, well, what if that's just the way I am? What if my gene pool, my genetic disposition... Because this is, this is an argument being made about alcoholism. What, about, what if my genetic disposition is alcohol? Um, all right, well, here, here's the interesting thing. I don't doubt. I, I think it probably, maybe, maybe science will catch up with some ability to extract genetics out of our physical body and discover sort of when that lightning bolt of the fall hit it, which direction it pushed it in. Your gene pool went this way, mine went that way. And one person's vulnerable to temptations in one category that somebody else, not me, that doesn't bother me. But some people go this way, some people go that way. So so if we want to make this argument for allowing orientations, what about the person who's oriented towards sex with the opposite sex? What do we do with that person? Or do we just say, hey, you know, that's, that's kind of your impulse. That's kind of the way you are, right? Uh, why, why isn't there a uniqueness being granted to all forms of genetic disposition? Right? If you're going to argue that a homosexual has an orientation in them genetically toward the same sex, don't you have to make, let me make this argument? Because I have more facts on my side. I guarantee you that the per- every person in this room who is heterosexual is oriented towards the opposite sex and therefore has a bent and a desire that kicks in somewhere around puberty to explore that expression of that with the opposite sex. I can make that argument. And I'm right. It's, it's instinctive. It's in every one of us. So does that mean we... We give permission, we validate, you know, the 30-year-old who wants to commit adultery, the 15-year-old who wants to sleep with someone and commit fornication. Do we, do we say, well, that's, that's just their orientation. That's just how they're bent. You know, I got a 30-year-old guy who says, hey, listen, yeah, maybe you're satisfied just being married to one woman, but you see, I got a much, much bigger sex drive than that. I've got a bigger appetite. I mean, my urgings in me are for more than just my wife. You just, you got to understand that, don't you? Or the 15-year-old whose hormones are raging has a desire to fornicate with another human being. Do we just say, well, that's their orientation and you need to allow for that? Why is it that we come to a couple, 
man and a woman are married, married for years. And this man decides, I, I want to have an affair with another woman. And he begins to explore an affair with another woman. And, and society steps in. The courts can step in and can say, that's wrong. That's not acceptable. But if you have a man married to a woman and he discovers that he's a homosexual and he has a desire for men, all of a sudden that's treated differently. Now everybody's being asked to understand that he's discovered his orientation. Listen, the 30-year-old who wants to commit adultery, he's discovering his orientation. Gentlemen, do you remember discovering your orientation as a teenager? I'm serious. You had urges and desires in you. What about the guy who's oriented, you know, outside of sexual activities? He's oriented. He's a hothead, right? His orientation is angry. I have anger orientation. Now, maybe you don't, right? Maybe you're cool and level-headed, but I'm explosive. That's just the way I am. You see, I mean, I was born that way. Ask my mother. She'll tell you. I was a handful. I ran over everybody. I had the foulest mouth you ever heard. I just was an explosive person my whole life. And then that guy gets married and he's got problems. And even the courts will step in and require that guy to go to anger management classes. Why don't, why don't we just say as a society, that's just the way he is. He's just bent in that direction. That's, he's discovering his orientation. Now listen, why is it do we take homosexuality pull it away from every other orientation and put it in its unique category and say we have to treat this one differently when we treat all the rest. Why are we doing that? And it's amazing that we're doing it. You realize every sin came from the fall. And then this entire Bible got written after the fall. And the same Bible that turns around and says, be angry and don't sin. Right, we're, and we're cool with that one, right? The same Bible that says that and also says, do not commit adultery. I don't care how much, how much urging you got going on. Do not do it. But you don't understand. I mean, I am on fire. <laughs> do, you think, do you really think the Bible says, okay, listen, guys, this morning, we're going we're gonna to teach on adultery this morning. Um, I'd like all the really, really on fire guys to sit on this side. <laughs> And all you guys that are kind of moderate in here and those who are just cold as ice and not attracted to anything that moves, y'all go ahead and sit over here. Uh, because when we teach this lesson, you guys over here, this isn't going to apply to you. But you guys in here, you got a 50-50. You guys over here, this is what the Bible's about, all right? It's about you guys who don't have any desire to commit adultery. You don't, you, this is applying to you. Don't commit adultery. Now listen, don't you guys get condemned by this, all right? Because we know that you're just like burning hot. So you get to commit adultery, you guys don't. Do you understand the same Bible dress addressed all of humanity when it spoke? And it said, do not commit adultery. I don't care how much you're burning. Don't do it. Do you realize how narrow the Bible really is when it comes to sexuality? This sounds off the charts. You're going to wonder whether they should lock me up when I say this today. Do you realize the Bible says here is righteous sex? One man with one woman in the commitment of marriage for the rest of their lives. 
don't ever have sex outside of that, ever. Everything outside of that is a departure from righteousness. Everything outside of it. So if you're a, a couple, you're in love, you're not married, but you're in love, and you're sexually involved with each other, it's unrighteous. You sin against God. If you're married and you're having sex outside of your marriage, it's unrighteous. It's a sin against God. If you have cravings for someone of the same sex and you act upon them, it's unrighteous. It's a departure from God's righteousness. It is sin against God. Doesn't all that... It's real simple, doesn't it? I don't know why we make it so complicated in our world to take this one sin, treat it so uniquely when the Bible does not. This is one sin among many sins. Right? I think we need to be careful the world in which we live. And, and I, I realize as I say this, it's like, Keith, that sounds so extreme. I mean, you're, even the fact that you're mentioning homosexuality in a negative way today, dude, I mean, you, I mean, listen, I could have stood up here today and what, talk about jealousy and everybody been, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. I can mention adultery still, still in our culture, I can mention adultery and everybody's like, yeah. But if I mention homosexuality, I, I, I'm, I'm flirting with some problems right now, aren't I? There's some people feeling like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, you, I don't know if I like the way you sound. All right, well, can I, can I just bring us an awareness I'm reading from a Bible that's a couple of thousand years old. I'm not introducing any new thought today. I'm just repeating what God has said for thousands of years, right? Here's the position of God. I'm just telling you what it is. Now, when the world decides we don't, we don't want that position, we want this one. And then years later, they said, we don't even want that one anymore, we want this one. And, and we don't want that position, we want this one. We don't want that position, we want this one. And then it stands way over here, and it now explains how to see homosexuality. Now, when I stand over there and just repeat what the Bible says, I sound like a freak, don't I? Well, is it because my position has changed? <laughs> no. I'm saying what the Bible has said for years and years. It's because the world's position has changed. So if this sounds extreme, well, it's not because God has moved. It's not as though all of a sudden the church, you know, those homophobes, the church has all of a sudden taken this position that it never took before. Listen. I don't like the term homophobe, but... but I'm a godophobe. I have a I have a healthy fear of God. And if God has an opinion about something, I, I don't feel the liberty to mess with it. So that also makes me, by the way, an angerophobe. It does greedophobe, I'm that too. An adulterophobe. Right? I am. I am all those things. But it's an interesting question Ms. Goldberg wants to ask. It's interesting that that's the first thing out of her mouth. Isn't that interesting? I don't even know that she's homosexual, but it's the first thing she wants to talk about. Right? She's going to interview somebody who's a pastor of a Christian church. 
And her question is, how, how do you feel about people who are gay? That's the first question out of her mouth. I had somebody come who was interested in possibly coming to the church. Wanted to find out more about us, wanted to find out what we believed, etc. Did the same exact thing to me. Married person. First question. How do you, how do you feel about uh, gay people? And then the question became, how would you feel if a gay person walked in the back door of your church? Um, I said, well, I'd probably feel the same way I feel every Sunday morning when adulterers walk through the back of the church and when liars walk through the back of the church and when thieves walk through the back of the church and when all the greedy Americans that attend our church walk through the back of the church. I said, I probably would feel the same way. Oh, and by the way, I walked in the back door of the church at some point. Now, here's the reality. When you read a lot of these lists, I'm all over these lists. Now, I'm not in the homosexual category, if you're you're curious about that. Um, (laughs) But I'm in a bunch of the other categories. There's a bunch of lists in the Bible that God says, no, I'm against that. You choose to do that, I'm not for you. And there was a bunch of those that described me. So for me to walk in the back door of the church, see, this is where the church doesn't get permission to create certain sins that are the really bad ones. So if somebody walks through the back door of the church and they're gay, and we're kind of, hmm, you see who's here? Who's here today? It's gay. You know, do you do that? For your neighbor that, that you got in, that you invited that's been committing adultery? You know, do you? <laughs> oh, I invited my boss. A liar. <laughs> A liar. Right. Uh, okay, we don't have permission to do that. Because right, when the fall hits us and we are tempted into categories of sin and the Bible comes along and says, thou shalt not do that. And we violate that. We violate it in a variety of ways and we all stand in the same line of sinners in need of a savior. So how, how would I do with a homosexual coming through the back door? I would see a sinner just like I was in need of a savior. All right, I know I'm gonna run out of time here. All right, verse four. After this list, go back to First Peter, I'm sorry. First Peter chapter four. After this list of behaviors, Peter then says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in their flood of debauchery. And they malign you. Christian, arming yourself to be obedient as Christ was obedient for the sake of the gospel means you're going to not do some things that others do. And then you're going to get maligned for it. You're going to get made fun of. And Peter did a good job last week of making fun of some of those things. So, question for the church. They are surprised when you do not join them. Question, question for you, question for how you're living your life, question for what you're like when you're not here in a church service. 
Are you surprising anyone by what you don't do? Because yeah, I, I got to say this. I got to say this is this is an honest reality about the church today that we live in. Uh, it, it's it's no longer cool in the Christian community to not do some things. It's not cool anymore. And I think this, there's the pendulum, and there's always, we live our lives on pendulums, right? We're way over here for years, and then the swings over here, and we're way over here. And the church is that way, right? Years ago, way over here, I can remember, uh, you just didn't join in anything, right, as a Christian. You didn't join in anything. You didn't wear clothing that looked like anything anybody else in the modern world was wearing, you didn't join in that. You didn't take the risk that you were over-fashionable and immodest. And so you wore something that looked like farm people from the 40s were wearing. And somehow that's just what you wore. Movies, you didn't see movies. There was an unspoken reality, right? Bill, you remember growing up, you didn't see movies. You don't go to movies. Music. When you got saved, you burned every piece of music you owned. Right? You joined a rally, you took your 45s, you cracked them, you celebrated getting rid of everybody. Everybody. Didn't matter who, anybody. If they're secular, you don't listen to it. And so nobody listened to secular music. Right? So, you know, the pendulum was way over here for a while. Now, now the pendulum is way over here. And there's no surprises for anybody because we listen to the same music they listen to. We go to the same places that they go. I mean, go to a bar room? Go to a bar room? Years ago, you didn't go to a bar room. As a matter of fact, you weren't even allowed to say alcohol. Not much less drink it. You couldn't even say the word. Then over here somewhere today, we drink with the best of them, go to the bar rooms, watch every movie that comes out that has any entertainment value at all. It's like nobody's surprised anymore. Now, can I say this? Because I'm not for either extreme. And here's what happens. A bunch of people were living this over here, had no idea why they were living this over here. It was just unspoken rules that people had imposed and created. Next thing you know, they're dressing a certain way and they're never doing this and they're never listening to that, but rules. And then way over here, there's a bunch of other rules. The rules today just sound like, hey, everything goes, and it's just uncool. You don't, you don't, you don't. Oh, <laughs> And so there's other rules over here. How many of you are actually asking the Holy Spirit where you should be in these issues? Not just following some cultural pattern that got imposed on you. Right? If, you're, if you kind of got a freedom to go into a bar room, I'd be interested as to how you thought that out. How'd you come to that conclusion? Now, I'm not telling you whether you can or you can't in saying that. I'm just curious as to what you're made of and how you figured out whether that was something God wanted for you or not. Arm yourselves to think like Christ did, to do the will of God. Do you know what the will of God is for you in that? In the secular music issues? I've gone from anything secular, anything not written for a Christian uh, label is, to, is taboo to, to now people are listening to, to stuff that is anti-God being written and celebrated by people who are anti-God. And yet, because it's for public consumption, it's like, how are we thinking this stuff through, right? I just want to turn us loose 
away from rules, you get on the hook with God. What does God want for you in these categories of your life? You go see movies? Do you, do you pray and consider what you set in front of your eyes? Are you waiting for somebody to put a rule together? Don't go see any movies. All right, I won't go see any movies. Uh, go see every movie. All right, hey, what's out? You know, it's like I'm not making any decisions here led by God. Arm yourselves to know the will of God for your life and find out. Because listen, you know, when the lightning hits you and you got bent this way and you go see that movie, that movie, because of the way you're bent, you just inherited months of problems, didn't you, gentlemen? There's a few men in here who might go see that. And that's, I'm bent this way. When the lightning hit me, it went this way. And so that's, that's not going to be a problem for me the way it is for you. That's real. There's some people in here who could go in a bar room right now. A bunch of us could right now go to the bars together. And there's a bunch in here who you should never put your foot in a bar room because drinking parties lead to drunkenness, lead to sensuality. For you. you understand? You've got to find this stuff out. You've got to be armed with the will of God. All right, let me see if I can do this last section because this is a critical, critical section here. Verse 5. He's just talked about the Gentiles who live in the desires of what they want to do in verse 5. He says, but, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Right, did you know the Bible teaches that every one of us joined by every human being is going to give an account. We are going to be held responsible for the lives that we lived. Now, the air you and I breathe is the air of irresponsibility. No one's responsible. Right there's there's professional blame shifting going on. If you go spend a lot for counseling, you can get taught how to do that. It's not your fault. It's that person's fault. It's your past. It's this one over here. There's victimization. You know, we've been on the receiving end of people who have done us wrong. So when we we talk about our own sins and our own actions that God calls sinful, we can explain why we did it. Because you understand, it's, it's, you know, and Adam did this for us. He gave us a good example in the garden. It's the woman you gave me, God. I'm not responsible for the woman you gave me. Right? It's a bunch of us in marriages who think one day we can stand before God and say, it was, it was her fault, God. I mean, certainly, if you had lived with my wife, you would understand why I did that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I, I understand. As a matter of fact, I think you'll do that some more, <laughs> given who she is. You know, does the Bible sound that way? And then we live in an age of relativism. So before you even try to figure out why you're justified in what you did wrong, you might have to first even see if you even agree that it's wrong. <laughs> right? I mean, hey, homosexuality, well, that's not really wrong according to the relative world that we live in. Now, here's, here's a reality, newsflash. There is something called divine accountability the God who gave us life has set a day of appointment for every human being to stand before him and render an account for the life that we lived every day, every moment, every action, every thought, every word we spoke is going to reappear on that day 
in high definition before God. Right? Here's what the Bible says. This is briefly what the Bible says. Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, every deed, every secret thing, everything you thought no one knew about will be absolutely clearly portrayed in the presence of God on that day. Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 16 in Romans 2. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. If you want to hang out in a verse, if you want to get a good, accurate picture of God, hang out in that verse that we just read for a little while. Now, I don't don't like this phrase, so if I look like I'm about to gag and throw up and you use it around me, it's because I don't like it. But when somebody says, well, my God would never, you know, immediately, oh, oh, you're about to induce vomiting. Well, here's why. Because you don't get to say who your God is. You understand how foolish of a statement that is? My God, that, that means you invented him. It means he came into existence when you gave him permission to be who he is. He's my God. I made him. Look at him. And my God's not that way. You know all that judgment wrath stuff you just read about? My God's not that way. You don't get to determine who God is. You only get to discover who God is. We don't have permission to do that. God already exists. So therefore, right, can you just logically go here with me, even if you hate what I'm saying right now? Can you just logically go here with me? God already exists before you and I ever existed. He already existed. Therefore, he already is a certain way. And now you get to discover how he is. And what you don't get to do is edit the verse that we just read. Because all of us like where it started. Right? This is a God who is kind and forbearing and patient. Ah, I like that. That's my God. My God is kind and forbearing and patient. And God reveals that to us. So I can tell you, if you tell me that about your God, I can tell you, amen. Yes, he is. And you don't even know the beginning of it because you don't like the rest of the verse. He's amazingly kind and amazingly forbearing. His patience is off the charts. And me coming to know that is supposed to do what? Lead me to repentance. Right now, there's an awkward word, right? 
Because for me to repent means for me to say, I came in contact with this God and I realized I was wrong. And I needed to turn to him in repentance, knowing that I have been living my life wrong. And that same God who will welcome my repentance, who is kind and forbearing and patient, will one day close the door to my repentance and actually judge my life if I have refused his kindness and refuse to repent. That's all in the same verse. You and I don't get to edit God. We don't look at that verse and say, okay, this God is about kindness and forbearance and repentance amongst people and a day of judgment. He's about all those things. But I don't really like those two parts of him. So I'm going to take this part over here and I'm going to create my whoopee theology. That says God is kind and forbearing and he's fine with you choosing to do whatever you choose to do with your life. Unlike those homophobe churches over there who aren't. That's Whoopi's question. The question is not whether, I mean, this this is a question for us as a church, whether we welcome people into God's redemption. But the question is more about God. How does God respond to our lives? Right now, when we read a little bit further here, here's how this section concludes. This is the great, great news. Verse six. For this is why the gospel was preached. Even to those who are dead. This, this is why the gospel was preached. You ever want to know why the gospel Why is the gospel needed? Why is the gospel necessary? Is it because our lives are just difficult and we'd like to spin them more positive? We'd like for every day to be a Friday. We'd like for everything to be nice in life. Okay, hey, there's an aspect to that. But when I hear this verse, I hear that there is a historic reality. This is why. What is why? Wayne Grudem says, the word this refers back to the subject of the previous sentence the final judgment. In other words, it was because of the coming final judgment that the gospel was preached. Why is the gospel preached? Because of the judgment of God is coming. That's all throughout the Bible. Now, here's a critical issue. I think I wrote this out in your outline. Might it be that the silencing of these biblical realities, accountability to God and the judgment of God, have made the gospel optional to people. Does does the gospel sound like an optional self-improvement plan to you? It's like you can improve your life through this way or you can improve your life through the church way. But all of it's about personal improvement. And right, and there's the personal improvement message of the church people. And there's the personal improvement message over here in this realm of life and these ideas. Just some different ways for personal improvement. Well, then it's an option, and I got other options available. If I want a better life, I can go with this or I can go with that. I can improve my life through getting around a bunch of loving people and, and just being sacrificial and caring about things, or I can improve my life through getting a good job and making lots of money and buying my way through and providing for people the way I want to provide for them. Right? It's just one option among many. But what if that's not what the gospel is seeking to be applied to? What if it's seeking to be applied to the reality that every one of us is going to stand before God 
on a day when he judges what we did with our lives, whether we obeyed him with our lives or not? What if that's what the gospel is about? For this reason, the gospel is preached. Mark Wallace says, ultimately, Paul is accurately conscious of God's wrath toward those who reject Christ and oppose Christ's people. You can see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, by the way. This is a good question. To what extent does the wrath of God affect your everyday thinking? Pray now for those who know who you know who are hostile to the gospel message and its messengers. See, Wallace is commenting on Paul having said, hey, you know what? The Jews were mistreated by people. The church is being mistreated by people. And we're just trying to bring God's word to people. But God is storing up wrath for those who oppose him and his people. That's what Paul said. That's what he's talking about. How influential is it in the way in which we live our everyday lives? that every one of us will stand before God and give an account for our lives and that everybody that we ever come in contact with will stand before God and give an account for their lives. For this reason, we preach the gospel. All right, now let me draw us to a close here. Matt, go ahead and, and come up. All right, two, Two application points. Can I just give you two here? One for those who you know that, that, that you're in Christ. You're a Christian today. You've been saved by the gospel. Right? Church. Here's a paraphrase of this whole section. Arm yourself to suffer. Arm yourself to suffer. To not put your personal pleasures ahead of preaching the gospel. Christian. Arm yourself to not put your personal pleasures ahead of preaching the gospel. <clears throat> when I read this section here, remember what we've just come through. Because Peter's been explaining the preaching of the gospel since chapter 1, the proclamation of God's glory. How we relate to one another, how we love one another how the church lives in this world, how we walk in our marriages, how we relate to the government. Remember all that stuff, mind-blowing stuff that we've discovered? All of that was preaching the gospel. And then there's going to be moments where I don't feel like preaching the gospel in how I relate to my wife. I don't feel like it. Keith, arm yourself with this mindset, the same one Christ had, that your personal pleasures are not to rival obedience to God's will. How am I to respond to my wife? Respond to my children? Respond to people who maybe make my life difficult in some way? I don't respond to that. Well, I arm myself to not serve my personal preferences, but to preach the gospel. That's the priority of our lives. Well, that might mean I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to do things I don't want to do. I have to put myself in positions I don't want to be in. Yes. And that wasn't in the fine print. It was right below the title. When Jesus said, you want to follow me, I want you to follow me. Take up your cross and come follow me. If you're here this morning and
you're not quite sure how you would do on that day when you stand before God. And you're going to give an account for every word, every deed, every secret act, the priorities of your life. That day is coming and you can't avoid it. It's a real day. It's the most real day of your life. It will determine the future course of your existence for all eternity. That day. Now listen, that day, it should sound like a terrifying day because it is. It is, honestly. It is a terrifying day. The Bible actually says it is a fearful, terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You should feel very conflicted with the thought that you're going to have to answer for what you did last week. You're going to have to answer for how you used your time. You're going to have to answer for your money, what you spent it on, what you found as valuable, how you spent your time, what relationships were in your life and how they were handled, whether you were forgiving or unforgiving towards those who did you wrong, whether you made restitution to those that you wronged. this would go on and on and on. You are going to stand before God. Now here's, here's the gospel. God knew that no one would do well on that day. No one. The only reason why I'm standing here in this room today with you and say that, that day, I'm still a little spooked, honestly, by that day. Right, for the same reason I don't play with electricity I carefully change light bulbs because there's a little bit of power there that I don't quite understand and I don't kind of want it traveling through my body unexpectedly the God of the universe is way beyond that so I got a little bit of a man, what's that day going to be like but I also have some good news because God knew me like you wouldn't be able to stand in his presence blameless on that day that's why he sent his son he sent Jesus Christ to do and to live the life that you and I failed to live we've already failed to live it he sent his son to live that life and to take our place that word wrath has to do with God punishing sin he sent his son to absorb the punishment of sin for everyone who will trust him everyone who will trust him is that you? is it you in a way that you know it's you? if you're here today and you got one of them flimsy I'm a a nice guy kind of thing going on no is it you and you love God you love God you got a passion for God you met this God. He turned your world upside down. Things that you were all about, all over, were meaningful for you. God touched them and you are a different person now. That's what a believer in Christ is. If that's not you, then it can be you this morning, right now. Let's stand up together. Let's pray and ask God to help us for a moment. Father, I thank you. I thank you for 
the words in your word. Lord, I thank you that you rescue us. I'm not trying to be ugly and criticizing Whoopi Goldberg's statement. But God, how misleading to present you as a God who basically is for anything. That's not how you've presented yourself. Lord, you are for righteousness, for you are a righteous God. And you've gone to great lengths to tell us what righteousness is. It's not like we can be ignorant of it. You've shown us your rightness and you've shown us what sin is. Lord, in this room, from chair to chair, filling this entire auditorium, Lord, is one person after another who is guilty of violating your righteousness, falling short of what you expect from us. This morning, you invite any who would put their trust and their hope in what Jesus Christ did. This gospel, this gospel, this good news. God become man, taking the place of man to live a righteous life every day, every moment, every thought, every deed, every secret moment. Lived perfectly righteously on behalf of everyone who will trust him. Lord, this morning, help some here to get out from underneath the fear of that day that's coming and to embrace a Savior, a God who will save them, a God who is patient, patiently has awaited this day in so many lives that we might turn to you and trust. Listen, I know God's dealing with our hearts in different ways, but if you're here this morning, you walked in this building today, you're not sure you were right with God. Right now, you can put your faith in Christ and Christ will make you right with God. He will forgive the sins that you're afraid are going to get disclosed on that day. He'll forgive them. He'll wash them away. He'll restore you to God. Listen, we're going to close in prayer in just a moment. I just want to ask you, if you're here came in here not sure, but you want to be sure. I want to ask you to, to come forward just a moment. As we close in prayer, I'm going to have somebody come pray with you. You can be sure this morning. Do not leave here today afraid of your future. Leave here today assured that when you stand before God, you stand forgiven. The object of His mercy welcomed as he is your father. If you're here today and you want to be prayed for that way, I just want to ask you, just go ahead and come out from where you are. Come step out. Come forward and we're going to pray for you.
Now, I know that there's a struggle sometimes to arm ourselves to be obedient to the will of God. How many of you guys can recognize? You know, I'm not going to ask you guys to come forward because I'm pretty sure most everybody who can lift a hand can lift a hand right here. How many of you guys have recognized in the past week that you refused to suffer for the sake of the gospel? You refused to proclaim the gospel because it meant being uncomfortable. It meant going to that person and you don't want to go to that person. It meant forgiving that person. It meant laying down your life for somebody who's taken advantage of you over and over and over again. How many of you guys can recognize honestly with me that this past week you refused to suffer for the gospel? Well, Lord, you see... You see our hands, God, and you know our hearts. Lord, in light of what we've just read, there is a day coming. There's a day coming for people who are looking on at your church. It is a terrible day, God. When they will render an account to a holy God, they will stand before your presence. Like the people who fled from the mountain when you just made yourself known a little bit. God, you're going to be there in your fullness. And there's going to be some serious trembling going on. And people are going to be made aware that you are calling them to render an account for their lives. And an eternal decision will be made. Lord, these folks are the audience for our lives. And you are calling us to arm ourselves with the same mindset Christ had, who embraced suffering for the sake of obedience to his Father so that the gospel could be preached through his life. God, give us grace to preach the gospel through our embracing of circumstances which we suffer. God, today, give us grace. Arm us for this cause. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys.